Today's gospel provides one of those occasions where being named Peter is a kind of double-edged sword. You are thinking not as God does, but as human beings do. Now, if anyone other than Jesus Christ offered this criticism of Peter, I might be tempted to accuse him of being unfair. How is Peter supposed to think? He is a human being. Shouldn't human beings think like human beings? Our Lord's critique of Peter's expression of concern for his teacher gets even more uncomfortable when we look back a line and notice that Jesus calls Peter Satan. This seems to suggest that man's way of thinking is actually Satan's way of thinking. But this line of thought illuminates the situation as well. After all, man originally was made in the image and likeness of God and enjoyed easy converse with God in the Garden of Eden. And it's only when the tempter arrives that there is a noticeable gap between God's way of thinking and human beings' way of thinking. In some sense, man's thoughts, as distinct from God's, is the product of sin. It's not the product of nature. It really is Satan's thought. We were made to share life with God and as rational creatures to be the link between God and the material world. With the introduction of sin, man begins to make his own plans, plans that often revolve around things like power, fame, sensuality, and so on. Whenever Satan gets us to think that these ways of behavior are simply natural, it's just man's way of thinking. I like what I like. It's good to have power. You can get things done. When Satan makes us think that that's natural, it's man's way of thinking, he scores a pretty significant victory. God's way of thinking seems too difficult. It's too idealistic. Whereas, in fact, God's way of thinking, according to the gospel, is simply natural to human beings when we are freed from sin. God's way of thinking can seem positively harsh, which is exactly why Peter objects to what Jesus is saying, this idea of Jesus being put to death and crucified. But what is Peter's alternative? I mean, what would he have Jesus do instead? Surely it would be that he would ride into Jerusalem and with a word of power, vanquish the occupying power of the Romans, depose the corrupt temple priesthood whose collaboration makes the occupation work, set up a glorious throne in the midst of the temple, surrounded by people like Peter, adoring and basking in the emanating glory of the victorious champion. Now, this might not seem like a problem, but let me offer a literary example to help us understand what's at stake. I was a big science fiction fan as a kid, and so I was familiar with the name George R.R. Martin probably before most people were. So he published regularly in Isaac Asimov's magazine. I wasn't a big fan. He's more fantasy than science fiction in my book. In any case, he's the guy who gave us Game of Thrones. I haven't read the series, and I haven't watched the television show, and I won't. Uh, But I'm interested in this guy because he consciously set up his work as a foil to the works of J.R.R. Tolkien. Plus, he's a very influential person. Uh, Probably most of you have seen Game of Thrones, and I'm not criticizing you for that. But let me tell you what Martin says, and this helps to clarify the issue of what the Messiah ought to be like. He says this, quote, Ruling is hard. This was maybe my answer to Tolkien, 
whom, as much as I admire him, I do quibble with. Tolkien can say that Aragorn became king and reigned for a hundred years, and he was wise and good. But Tolkien doesn't ask the question, what was Aragorn's tax policy? Did he maintain a standing army? What did he do in times of flood and famine? And I actually think that Martin is making a, a very helpful observation here. Again, I think it clarifies the issue, even though I disagree with him. In this world, the exercise of civil authority is almost necessarily bound up with things like coercion, with force or violence even, with pageantry and pomp. In fact, as I said a moment ago, this is undoubtedly what Peter is imagining as the final goal of the Christ. But Peter doesn't ask what happens once the Messiah is enthroned and has to levy taxes and fight wars and deal with domestic disturbance. The Bible actually answers this for us. Uh, Martin wasn't the first one to, to answer this question. It's actually the, uh, the Deuteronomist historian of the Bible. The answer to Martin's challenge is, is named David. David really was and is remembered as a king who was wise and good. And yet he too succumbed to the enticements of pleasure and power, killing his faithful soldier Uriah and running off with his wife Bathsheba. And Tolkien himself is in no way naive to the difficulty of ruling in this world. Uh, his work, if you know it, especially if you've read outside of uh, The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, you know that it's suffused with a kind of malaise and melancholy. Why is that? Because this world is passing. No war is final. There is no war to end war. There's no such thing in this world. For the elves in Tolkien's world, the emergence of man, of human beings, they come on the scene kind of late, they come with a mixture of hope and unmitigated disaster. Disaster because men think like men and crave power, driven by what Augustine calls the libido dominandi, the lust for domination. But human beings also offer hope. Why is that? Well, it's hard for the elves to see this because they don't know about Jesus Christ, but what they see in man is that human beings are often out of sync with the world in some weird way. Men long for some lost home. They're, they see things beyond what is in the world and are, are longing for something bigger than the world. And that's actually why this desire for domination is so dangerous, because our desires are for something that transcends this world. What we are seeking will only make final sense with the advent of Jesus Christ, who in himself, who is both God and man, who is the perfect resolution of this tension between God and man, he himself resolves this antipathy that had sprung up in the hearts of men for the thoughts of God. There's no gap between God's thoughts and man's thoughts in Jesus Christ. They're the same. And if we are in him, there's no gap between those thoughts. So Jesus offers us a way out of this prison of power and deceit that is in this world. Uh, the way out is the way of the cross. It is a way of total nonviolence a way that is opposed to any sensual excess at all. It's a way of humility and obedience, totally opposed to pride and pomp. It is the narrow way that leads out of this world and its enticements and to eternal life and true glory and unfading glory. And what we are doing this morning, my brothers and sisters, by gathering around the altar of this very crucified Lord, 
To witness to Christ's self-offering and partake of his body and blood is truly radical. We are saying no to the city of man, renouncing the world and restoring the lost communion between God and men, and in the process restoring the lost communion between ourselves, between man and man, man and woman. As we leave the church today, we should work hard to remember that the tempter is waiting to lead us away from God again, to convince us that this is not the right way, this way of the cross. There's an easier way. There's a more comfortable way. But we should remember then at those times that we've been fortified with the grace of the sacrament. Christ lives in us. This same crucified and resurrected Lord is closer to us than we are to ourselves. We can say no to the world's enticements. We can be confident that even if we suffer for this renunciation, perhaps because we suffer for it, we are learning, slowly and painfully perhaps at times, but truly learning to think not as fallen man anymore, but to think as God does.